like this, but hey, if you can use your imaginations, we'll be okay. Um, can we get the PowerPoint up there? That would be great. Um, so we're in Acts chapter 27, a story that we actually started last week, but you'll soon catch up if you weren't here. And um, it's a long passage, so I think we'll probably read it in sections, he just decided. And uh, then it'll be a bit easier just to understand what's going on then. It's called The Story of the Storm this morning, and uh, I'll read from verse 13 of Acts 27 onwards. Paul has just warned the people he's sailing with that the voyage is going to be disastrous. The ship is going to be sunk. And at first, they think he's got it wrong. Good. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the northeast. Well, that's the, that's the translation of it in our, in our uh, new international version, but uh, older versions say Euroclidon and things like that. Um, it's a Greek word that basically means a wind from the northeast. Um, it swept down from the, from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted the board, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. And fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Okay, so let's go back a little bit and look at how this story started. We talked about it last week. Paul is, is going to Rome. He's under guard. He's appealed to the emperor to judge his case. And so he's a prisoner, basically. But uh, he's got two friends with him who are helping and looking after him. And at first they sail along the coast that little bubble down the bottom there from Caesarea to Sidon. And that's that nice, pleasant trip. And in Sidon, he sees some of his old friends. And then start on the difficult bit. Because the wind always blows from the west around this part of the sea. And as they travel on the next bit, you find that uh, getting to Myra is very, very difficult because they're sailing against the wind. They're in a fairly small boat. It's taking ages. And they begin to realize that if they don't make get a bit of a push on, they're going to be sailing through the winter, which is not very good news. So at Myra, the centurion says, well, let's get onto a bigger ship. And they get onto an Egyptian grain ship, which is heading to Rome, and they head out into the sea. But the west wind still sends them. And so in the next bit, you can see how they have to go down below Crete instead of going along the top of it just to get out of the wind. And they go around the coast until they reach this place called Fair Havens. And this is basically where we left them last week. Fair Havens is a little scrubby, not very much, not very good, sheltered harbour, um, just uh, on that edge of Crete where you can see it down there at the south. And it's not a great place to spend some months in. They've begun to realise they're not going to get to Rome uh, by uh, that winter, and so they're going to have to stay in Crete. So they decide, well, we could either stay in Fair Havens, which is pretty awful, or we could try just to go 12 miles along the coast. They reckon that in this, this, this particular part of the island, they could hit a south wind that would just be very gentle and would draw them into the shore, and so they could sail along the shore until they got to Phoenix, which is a much better harbour, protected by the mountains behind it. Great place to spend the winter if they have to be in Crete. And so they decide that's probably what we'll do. 
Paul then warns him, nope, not a good idea. I'm telling you that if we try that, this ship is going to, 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 to have to be abandoned. And so it turned out, because instead of the south wind, which they thought they had to start with, it blew for a little while, suddenly this northeaster rages in, and it rips right across Crete. Because Crete is a low-lying island. You've got mountains at one end and the highlands at the other. But down that middle tunnel, the wind blows through. It's a bit like living in our house because uh, we live at the end of Edwell Valley in Exeter. And it was a great place to live until our neighbour, two doors down, cut down the great screen of trees that kept the wind off the Ludwell Valley from us. It now funnels straight through. And uh, our back garden um, in February is an interesting place to be. You wouldn't want to hang around there too long. Because wind just blows through. And Crete was like that, a great funnel. It just sends wind right down. And so what they found happening was as they started to edge along the, the coastline, trying to get to Phoenix, they were blown further and further out to sea. And as we've read, they just couldn't control what they were doing. So in the end, they just let themselves be driven along by the storm. And from that point onwards, just to go on to the end of the story, their journey must have gone a bit like this. Up and down, zigzagging through the Mediterranean until eventually they see this little island and try to get aground on it and actually uh, run aground just off the island and the ship is destroyed. That's Malta. Now, they were faced all sorts of difficulties in doing this. It, I mean, obviously, it wasn't a straight line because they were just blown about by the winds. But as they just left Crete, there's that little island down to the south of it called Cauda that they almost bumped into, but they somehow managed to get round it. At that point, though, they managed to get the lifeboat, which was trailing behind the boat on a bit of string, uh, back onto the deck and keep it up there. But that was all they could do. They were still being driven forward. And there was an even bigger danger in Crete, and that's round about there just off the coast of Africa. And that's what's referred to uh, as Sirtis. And uh, Sirtis, well, there were two of them. There was the lesser Sirtis, Sirtis Minor and Sirtis Maimor. And the greater Sirtis, which is where they were just about, is a gulf just off the coast of Africa where there is a hidden sandbar called the Sirti Rise. There's Paul's ship up at the top of the picture, and there's a Sirti Rise down there. And if you got onto that sandbar, you were not coming out again. There was a great Greek um, geographer called Strabo who lived just before the time of Paul, and he said this, In many places their deep waters contain shallows, and the result is at the ebb and the flow of the tides that sailors sometimes fall into the shallows and stick there, and the safe escape of a boat is very rare. You get into Sirtis, you're not coming out again. And somebody who was 19 when Paul was sailing across the Mediterranean like this, but later on, again, became a great writer on uh, the geography of the area, Dio Chrysostom, said this, Those who have once sailed into it, that's Sirtis, find it impossible to get out again. For shoals, cross currents, and long sandbars extending a great distance out make the sea utterly impassable or troublesome. For the bed of the sea in these parts is not clean, but as the bottom is porous and sandy, it lets the sea seep in, there being no solidity to it. So not only were you stuck on the sand, but it was sinking sand. If you tried to get out across it, you'd just go down. And so once you were in Sirtis, you were stuck. So they were desperate to keep north of Sirtis, and somehow they managed to. And Paul uh, emerges more and more, as we'll see, as the leader through this whole story. Uh, uh, there were lots of people around, 276 of them, as you've just heard. Paul and his friends were on the brunt. There were other prisoners there as well, possibly some who were taken to be gladiators in Rome, others who were heading for execution in Rome. There were the owner and the captain of the ship who were aboard, we've read earlier last week. Uh, there were Julius, the centurion, and his soldiers. Uh, there was the crew as well. 
And later on in a story, you find there are probably other passengers, and also there's everyone in Malta that they just bumped into by accident. Lots of people. And you might think, whoa, so Paul is going to preach to them all. They're all going to get converted, baptized, join the Evangelical Alliance, and that's going to be wonderful. And the interesting thing about this story, after all you've read in the book of Acts up to this point, is that Paul doesn't plant any churches. You don't hear of any of these people becoming Christians. Yet there is a tradition that Publius, the, the chief man on the island of Malta, did become a Christian and later on became a bishop and was, was, was um, put to death because of his Christian teaching. But that's just a tradition. We don't know that for sure. And uh, we just don't know what actually happened to the people in this story. And you might think, well, what? no churches. What's going on here? Why is Paul slacking on the job? What's, what's the reason that you don't get any great breakthroughs for the gospel in this chapter? Because earlier in that, it happens all the time, doesn't it? Paul goes to a, a, a town and, as if by magic, people become Christians and a church forms. And he goes on to the world and another church forms. And it's happening all over the place. Why not here? Is it because Paul has lost his touch? He's just too old for the job now. He's not making sense anymore. Is it because he's taking time off? You know, he just decides he needs to break after all his church planting stuff. And he's on a holiday in Crete and that's all he's bothered about. Is, he, is it that God is not working here for some reason? Or is it that the audience is just too pagan, too far out to understand what's going on? No, I think that what is going on here is just a reminder that evangelism isn't just about success, success, success. There are times when well, it's not like this. This is Billy Graham in London in 1954, and you can see the hundreds and thousands of people at the end of the wartime years in the... Uh, dark and, uh, and uh, rationed early 50s who needs some hope, need some, something to hang on to. And they've come to hear Billy Graham because he seems to be holding out a message of hope. But sometimes evangelism isn't always about results. But it's always about moving people forward. You see, sometimes when you communicate the gospel, you have great success. People become Christians just like that. Sometimes when you do it, they don't. But the important thing, if you're to do your job properly, is that you take them from wherever they were a step further, closer towards Jesus. You can see that through the history of uh, the church. Hudson Taylor founded the China Inland Mission, and he was the most unusual missionary China had ever had. You see, there had been 200 years of missionaries going to China at that point, and they had built churches, and it brought people to Christ, and it had all been around the coast. Nobody had got into the interior of China. And so Taylor started the inland mission. And he said, we're nibbling at the edges. What we need to do is spread the message all over China. And so he gave a pretty revolutionary uh, set of instructions to those who, who went out with him as missionaries. He said, become Chinese. He said, grow your hair long. Because the length of your pigtail to the Chinese says how much of a man you actually are. So you need a long pigtail. I'm going to listen to you. You need to be wearing Chinese clothes. And if you see pictures of his early missionaries, yep, they do look very Chinese, maybe with a Western face. <laughs> and he said, when you go to China, do not stop. Don't settle down in one town and plant a church. Just go on from town to town. Just spread the message of Jesus. Tell the stories. Don't particularly look for converts. Just make sure the whole country hears about Jesus. And as a result, today, you'll find the Chinese church is growing faster than any other in the world. Because what Taylor did shook up the whole business of mission in China in a way that would never have happened without him. 
And, and thousands and thousands and thousands of churches have been planted, not by him, not by his first missionaries, because they saw very little result for their effort, but since they laid the foundations. And sometimes people have to go into situations where they're not going to see lots and lots of people converted, but they're just sowing a seed. And I guess that's what Paul was doing in pretty unlikely places here. He did what he could, but it wasn't that much. St. Francis of Assisi, tremendous uh, Christian in the 14th century. And we all know about him talking to the birds and uh, liking little animals and giving his cloak to a beggar and all those usual stories. But did you know that he also went, wanted to talk to the sultan when the Muslims and the Christians were fighting one another in the Fifth Crusade? And he picked his way across the battlefield to the Sultan Al-Kamil's camp. He was captured and taken in as a spy and he said, no, I just want to talk to the Sultan. So they roughed him up and beat him up a little bit just to make sure that uh, he was telling the truth and then took him to the Sultan. And the Sultan said, so, so you want to become a Muslim, do you? That's great. And Francis said, no, on the contrary, I want you to be a Christian. And this was just jaw-dropping for the Sultan. And so he listened to him for a bit and said, well, you're a courageous man, you're an idiot, but you're a courageous man. Let me give you some presents and send you home. And Francis said, I don't want any presents, I just want you to become a Christian. End result was he stayed there for quite a while and explained the gospel in depth to Sultan Al-Kamil. And uh, it would be nice to say that the guy did become a Christian, but he didn't. <laughs> what happened, though, was that he became a lot more respectful of what Christians stood for. And uh, started to understand a lot more the challenge of the Christian gospel. And that had its impact on what he did with the crusaders who, uh, as Francis explained, knew very little about Christianity and don't think that they're all, all the Christians we've got. And uh, he started to become challenged by God in a way that had never happened before and to open the doors for other people in his sultanate to listen uh, to the gospel. So Francis made no great uh, converts in that journey, but he made a journey and an impact which is still being talked about, what, 800 years later? It's pretty incredible. Then there's Don Judson, American missionary who went to uh, Burma, Myanmar, early in the 19th century, and spent three years just learning the language. No converts, no evangelism, nothing. He'd set himself a goal, 100 converts by the end of his life. That was all he could believe would happen in a tough environment in which he was frequently flung into prison and tortured and all kinds of things. But he stuck to his job. By the end of his life, there were 100 churches planted by him. Still, it took him 12 years to get his first 18 converts. So it's not always easy. <laughs> It's tough. If you're a missionary in Texas today, you can do pretty well in terms of results. If you're a missionary, on the other hand, in Tehran, that's not going to be so easy. And so uh, evangelism is not just about seeing results. It's about moving people forward. This is a, a book that was very famous about 20 years ago because it contained the Engel scale, written by this guy, James Engel. Now, he was a Christian who was also a marketing professor in a university. He was interested in why people buy things and why they don't. <laughs> and so he came up with a thing called the Engel scale. And he says that when somebody becomes a Christian, it's not just a sudden leap from one end to the other, that one day you're a complete pagan uh, uh, doing all sorts of wicked things and evil things and not believing in God, and then suddenly, wow, wow, I think I'll be a Christian. And you jump to the other end of the scale. No, you move up a scale. And he put some things down on it that he thought were, were important, starting with no awareness of God, going up to some awareness of God, going up to contact with Christians, interest with Jesus, investigating Jesus. And you could put different points on the scale for different things. But he said, basically, evangelism is moving people up the scale. 
Now, you may have the incredible privilege of seeing people uh, reach um, point 10, decision to surrender to Jesus. Or you may not. But if you've moved them on in the direction of Jesus, that's what really counts. And I don't know what the impact was of Paul's contact with all of those soldiers on the boat, or all of those sailors on the boat, or all of those prisoners on the boat, or all of those people in Malta. But I do know that what he did was calculated to make them look at Jesus thoughtfully again and again. And so that's what you see happening. Now, to look at the story in some detail, the people on this ship, it seems to me, go through three stages in the course of this story. And all I want to do this morning for the rest of the time we've got is look at those three stages. First of all, there's a stage of despair. We've already looked at that a little bit. We've read those verses, and I'll go back to them in a minute. They, they start out with good hope. 12 miles and a nice gentle south wind. All we have to do is reach Phoenix and then we can sit back for the rest of the winter and then we'll sail on to Rome in, in the nice balmy uh, spring weather. It doesn't work that way. And as they get driven further and further out to sea, oh, oops, there's the island of Calda. Oh, missed it, thank goodness. Get the lifeboat back on deck. And, you know, oh, we've got to throw things overboard. Oh, let's throw all the grain overboard. Let's throw all the tackle overboard. And gradually, bit by bit, they lose hope until it says, in the last verse we read, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Gradually the despair grows. But then Paul stands up and says something else. And that's the stage of hope. And we'll get to that in a moment. When you start thinking, perhaps there is some hope for us. And finally, there's the stage of trust. When you start realizing that Paul does seem to know a few things, and they start listening to him a lot more. No, they are not yet Christians, <laughs> but they are listening to Paul with respect because they realize that he is a hotline <laughs> to a God who might just be able to help them in all of this. So let's look at those three sections, shall we? First of all, is the despair section. How do they despair? Well, when you're going through storms in your own life, I reckon you'll see some of the same things happen to you and me. Verses 13 and 14, for example. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they'd obtained what they wanted. They weighed anchor, they sailed along the coast. But before very long, a wind of hurricane force swept down from the island. Disappointment. Things don't work out the way you think they're going to. And at first it might just be a small cloud in the sky. But then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And many of us have been through that kind of searing disappointment in life. Then there's verse 15, which I've called here helplessness. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head in the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. No point making decisions anymore. No, no, no point making resolutions and, and, and trying to decide what you should do next because you can't do anything. And so you just give up and you let yourself be driven along. Then there's a stage of danger, 16 to 17. And you, you almost bump into Calda. Hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. Pass ropes under the ship to hold it together. Because those big grain ships uh, had a big problem. Because they had such heavy timbers with such a weight pressing down on them on the keel of the ship. You had to hold them together in a storm. And so every ship uh, carried equipment for what was called frapping. Frapping was wrapping a, a cable round and round the ship four or five times in two different places so that those boards would hold together and the whole thing wouldn't just spring a leak and send you out into the middle of a Mediterranean storm. So they did all of that uh, and they recognized the danger they were in. Then there's a situation of fear, 17b. Fearing they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. A sea anchor is 
something that you, you put out like a big bag behind the, 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 uh, the, the, the ship just to slow it down. If you can imagine a giant-sized Tesco's carrier bag, okay, tied to the ship uh, in the water, uh, tied to the ship with, with, with ropes, you can see how it's going to slow the uh, ship down as the carrier bag fills up with water and drags it back. That's a sea anchor, and that's what they did. And uh, we, they seem to have used six sea anchors in this whole journey just to try to stop the thing being pushed along by the storm straight into Sirtis or straight onto the rocks. So they're, they're, they were fearful all the time, looking out for the sandbars, thinking, are we approaching the coast of Africa? Then there's a stage of loss as well, when you begin to realize that you're losing everything that you hang on to, everything that you're trusting in. We took such a violent battering from the storm, verse 18, that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. And the owner of the ship is standing there and saying, well, it's all of grain I was going to sell in Rome. I was going to make a real killing at this time of year. And now it's all just going into the sea. It's being spoiled. It's being lost. And then that wasn't enough. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. <laughs> and uh, the things that you needed for steering the ship, uh, for making the ship uh, perform e efficiently, you just had to get rid of it. Because all you were concerned about now was staying alive. Then there's a stage of bewilderment. Verse 20a, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging. The great thing about a storm in the Mediterranean is you just can't see where you're going. And what the sailors feared in those days, more than the violence of the wind, was just not being able to see where you were. When you've got no equipment to tell you where you are in the Mediterranean, you could be anywhere. You're just looking out for landmarks. And if a storm is so ferocious, you're not going to see anything. And when the sun and the stars don't appear, that means the, 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 the winds have whipped up the, the spray into such a, a, a mist, such a dense mist that you're, you're just traveling along in a fog. You can't see where you are. And you're completely bewildered. Sometimes the storms of life leave in that kind of situation, don't they? And so the end result is exhausted. And uh, 20B says, when neither sun nor stars appeared, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. And people on board say, well, it's all over with us. All we have to do is carry on careering down this way towards disaster. And you can get into that situation in life as a non-Christian or as a Christian. Sometimes we just don't understand why God is allowing the things to happen to us that he allows to happen. And if that's the case, then we're going through what uh, this guy, my old boss in, in Youth for Christ, George Brooks, used to call the tunnel experience. And George had a sermon that he preached many times because people just found it so helpful, which was about going into the tunnel, not able to see the light behind you, not able to see the, the light up ahead, just in the middle, in the darkness. And George said, the one thing I've learned about the tunnel experience is never make any decisions while you're in the tunnel. <laughs> you just have to hang on and trust to God to get you out of it. Because if God doesn't get you out of it, you have no hope by yourself. And uh, if you've been there, the great thing about the second part of this story is it goes on to hope. And Paul starts to say, so let's read some verses, shall we? Verse 21. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. 
For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So this actually gave some new hope to all the people on the boat. When you look at it, I think, why? Why is this such an encouraging speech? I mean, it ends, we must run aground on some island. So be encouraged. <laughs> you might think, huh? What's going on here? Well, I think there are three things that uh, were, were true about Paul that were, were important. First of all, he was confident in his faith. He was in the same desperate situation as they were, but he had some kind of hope that they didn't have. And uh, I don't think many of them bought this story about, well, an angel came and spoke to me last, yeah, 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 and then you had a conversation with this fairy. Yes, we know all about it. You know, they didn't believe what he believed, but at the same time, they could see he was absolutely convinced about it. I remember once having to go to the house of uh, a guy who was a builder in Wiltshire when I lived there. And uh, this guy had been a pretty interesting, colourful character whose whose dealings were not totally honest, and then suddenly out of the blue he'd become a Christian and he'd just changed completely and he'd taken to having uh, a meal for the men of his village in his house once a month, just so that somebody could come from the outside and explain Christianity to them it was brilliant, and the change in him was just remarkable and uh, I was asked to go there and he said to me before I went, now I want these guys to get some good evidence to help them believe in Jesus. So tell them why the Bible's reliable. Tell them why the resurrection must have happened. Tell them why the whole thing makes sense. And I thought, right, right enough, I'll do that. And I gave them the best evidence I possibly could come up with. And uh, I spoke for 15 minutes, and then there was a time for people to ask questions. And when I'd finished, there was just a silence for a minute. And somebody sitting halfway down the table, who had to be a Scotsman, didn't he, just said... I don't buy a word of this. <laughs> so I thought, this is great. This has been a very successful evening. And he said, listen, I am not a Christian. And all of your reasons make no difference to me whatsoever. And I said, well, why are you here? And he said, well, I'll tell you why. I'm here for one reason and one reason alone. He said, when I was a student, I stayed with an old man and his wife. The old woman was very good to me, and they were both very nice, and they were Christians. And he said, I despised everything they believed in. I thought it was absolute fairy tales and rubbish, and I have not changed my opinion. But he said, when I was there, the old man died. And he said, I have never seen anybody handle death and tragedy like that old man. He said, she had something I just do not have. And he said, you can tell me all the reasons you like for the reliability of the Bible. It won't make any difference to me. But I need to find whatever it was that made her so sure a situation like that. I think that was the first thing. Paul was somebody who wasn't dashing about the deck saying, we're going to die, we're going to die, unless God saves us, why do you hope God saves us? No, he was confident that the whole situation was in God's hands. Second, he was concerned about his shipmates. He was saying to them, come on, have something to eat. Get yourself sorted out. Don't lose your courage. We can get through this. We've got to do this. And clearly, he cared for them. And sometimes you will find that when your message makes no sense to other people, your love actually will. Often it's your concern. The fact that the love of Christ is in you in a way that other people just can't understand. And God's unconditional love just manifests itself through the way you behave and the care you take of others. It's when you're in that situation that people start to see there is something real here that we can't argue with. And the third thing about Paul, well, oops, hang on, I've gone the wrong one. The third thing is he was clear-headed about the position. 
He wasn't just saying, okay, God is going to save us, so sit back, guys, let's just have a prayer meeting and sing some choruses, and God will find a way out of this. I'm not sure how to do it, but we just have to wait on the Lord. No, no, he was saying, look, we're going to lose the ship. And you guys have to eat because you are going to have some work to do. <laughs> We've got to fight to get ourselves out of this situation. He was clear-headed about the fact that God wanted to save them, but that didn't mean they could just sit back and say, well, we just trust the Lord and see how he worked it out. There's that famous old joke, which you've probably heard about um, the guy whose, uh, whose house uh, uh, was, was flooded and he managed to get up and sit on the roof uh, as the floodwaters slowly rose around him. And uh, uh, a guy came back past paddling a boat. Come on, come on, jump into the boat, jump into the boat, I'll save you. And he said, no, 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 I'm a believer. I trust God to save me. So the man paddled off. And uh, then uh, 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 a fire engine uh, came came down the road and they shouted across the water at him, look, look, we can get you out of here. We'll throw a rope to you and you can cling on it and swim, th swim through the water. And he said, well, don't fancy that. No, 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 no. I'm going to stay here until God rescues me because I have faith in God. And then finally, when the water had almost reached the top of the roof, a helicopter appeared and said, come on, come on, jump aboard. We'll get you out of this. And the man said, no, I trust in God to save me, so I'm not getting into your helicopter. And the waters kept on rising and the man drowned. And when he got to heaven... He said to God, God, why didn't you come and save me? And God said, well, actually I did. I sent you a boat, sent you a helicopter, sent you a fire engine, and you said no thanks to all Because there's a good point in the story, isn't there? The fact that God provides answers, but we still have to take them. We still have to do something about them. And it's because Paul wasn't sitting around and saying, oh, don't worry, an angel is going to take us right up to heaven any minute now. Just wait for the 3.30 angel. It should be along in a minute. No. He was saying, no, we're going to have to fight, and we're going to lose the boat, and it's going to be tough. But God will get us through this. That's the important thing, isn't it? God never promises magically to wave his wand and make your problems disappear. But he does say in everything that happens, God is at work for the good of those who love him and have called according to his purpose. In all the disasters, in all the pillars and trials of life, God is there doing what he can to, 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 to make a way of escape for us. And we need to remember that. So, finally, you, re you reach the third section, which is a section of trust. Let me just read a few verses here, uh, 27. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Whoa, they're getting to the coastline. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the shoulder, soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they'd eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by growing, throwing the grain into the sea. They're starting to listen to Paul. And there are three steps of trust that you see here. Not trust in God necessarily, but trust that Paul knows what is going to happen. First of all, they let the lifeboat go. <laughs> 
The sailors are trying to escape, to get out of the problem. They're thinking, well, this guy might have seen an angel or he might not, but we're not hanging around to find out. Let's just get in the boat and get out of here and we'll pretend we're going some essential work around the ship. But by the time we've got uh, down on the sea, we'll be far enough away that they won't be able to get us back. And Paul, who knew a bit about sailing by this point, he'd done a lot of sailing in his lifetime, knew exactly what the sailors were about. And so he said to the soldiers, look, if you let these guys go, they're the only people who know how to handle the ship. We're all sunk. And so the soldiers simply cut the ropes and let the lifeboat go. That means nobody can be saved now unless they're all saved. That was a step of trust, wasn't it? Second, they threw away the grain. Anything that was left from down below, they got it out and they threw it away. There was now nothing else to eat. Even the supplies they'd kept for themselves, which they hadn't eaten, as we heard, for 14 days. Well, not properly anyway. They probably snatched a bit of something or other as they went about their work, but they didn't have a proper meal until Paul had that moment when he gave thanks and had a meal right there in front of them. He said, come on, eat up. After they'd eaten, they threw everything else away. That's a step of trust, isn't it? Because either they get to land or else they won't have any more meals. And then the third thing happened. Read some more verses, verse 39. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a beach, a, a, a bay with a sandy beach, where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. There's the ship, that's an Egyptian grain ship. Cutting loose the anchors, they left the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. They, then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bows stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. So they do everything right. They cut loose the anchors, the two giant anchors at the back of the boat. They un or four in this case, wasn't it? They untied the rudders as well, those things that are essential for steering. They hoisted the foresail at the front, which helped you direct your ship to the direction you wanted to go. They did everything right, and still, they stuck fast on the sandbar. God's answers aren't always easy to understand. We thought, oh, here we are. He was right. Here's a, sh here's a beach in front of us. All we have to do is run the ship up on the sand, and we're fine. But it wasn't just that. There was another problem for them to face. We must run ground on some island, Paul had said, and they did. But uh, um, it wasn't quite as straightforward as they were hoping it to be. And so there was a third step of faith for them to take. And if you read on the next few verses, um, the soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. Because let's face it, if those prisoners had got away and escaped, the soldiers' lives would be threatened. Do you remember the story of Paul in pr the prison at Philippi? when there's a, an earthquake in the middle of the night, the jailer at first is going to kill himself because he thinks, oh, these guys have escaped. Oh, it's, I'm, I'm going to be responsible. I'm going to die. I'd better die now by my own dagger than be taken to Rome and tortured. And that's what the soldiers are worried about here. And Julius the centurion has got enough trust in Paul by this point that he wanted to spare Paul's life and he kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or pieces of the ship. <laughs> it's not a very detailed strategy, really, is it? And amazingly, in this way, everyone reached land in safety. So three steps of, of trust uh, that just show how the soldiers and the sailors are gradually starting to appreciate Paul is not a complete idiot. They're still a long way from becoming Christians, but they're starting to realize there could be a way out of this. There could just be a God at the back of it, and it could just be that Paul knows this God, this, this God himself. So, just to conclude, because we've, we've, it's been a long passage, but we're through it now, 
What's this telling us? What's the story of the uh, storm asking us in terms of question? I just want to just mention three in my last minute here. First of all, how do I react when I'm in despair? Many of us can identify with the stages that those guys went through when they just gradually, bit by bit, lost all hope. And so many people in life today are just losing hope in the face of problems that they can't stand any way out of. The number of of people who are ending their lives even in Western society is just rocketing because people think, I'm out of here. There is no answer. There is no happiness left for me in future. It need not be that way. And what the gospel offers, what Christianity teaches, is that there is always hope because there is a God who loves you, who is committed to you to the end. And if you just hang and have faith in him, he can find a way out of the, 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 the worst problems that you can face as a human being. Second thing is, does my daily life bring hope to others? It wasn't so much what Paul said, which I'm sure they found it very difficult to believe. It was what he did, the kind of person he was. And the way that Aristarchus and Luke, his companions, behaved as well. There was something different about these guys which just brought hope to other people. Now, when you die, if people heard you were a Christian, would they be surprised? Or would they say, yeah, of course, yeah, I realize that because there was always something about him that lit up other people when he was with them. There was always something about her. She always had something to say. It was always good. It just, it just reflected something that was bigger than them themselves. There was something shining out of them. I remember a girl who became uh, uh, interested in Christianity through our toddler groups once at Belmont and said, it's, it's like, y- oh, you Christians, you're just different. You've got a kind of aura around you. I remember saying, tell her it's a ready breakfast. <laughs> but uh, that's only if you're that old enough to remember the other. But, uh, <laughs> but it wasn't a ready break. It was Jesus. And that's the important thing. Does your daily life bring hope to others or does it not? And third, how real in the end is my trust in God? And if you're somebody who's not really a Christian, you're not sure about it, you don't have a firm friendship and relationship with Jesus Christ, then talk to somebody you trust this morning, somebody who is a Christian, and they'll help you discover exactly the same solidity of faith that they've got. And if you can't find anybody else, you can always talk to a wild Scotsman who's gone on for far too long, but uh, feel free uh, to, to do that, because that could be the greatest discovery you ever make in your life. You may make it stages by stages, as the soldiers and the sailors and the the prisoners and the Maltese seem to have done. But you'll get there because there's a God who loves you, who's committed to you, and who wants to know you more than anything else in the world. That's quite enough for this morning. Let's just pray together, shall we? So, Heavenly Father, as we come to the end of this service, we simply ask that uh, any lessons that we need to learn from this passage this morning will stick in our minds and hearts. It's a gripping story, but it's more than that. And we pray that the lessons that you want to teach us about yourself, about your faithfulness, about the need for us to cooperate with you in bringing about the solutions to the problems that face us in life, uh, we we just ask that all of these lessons will go home to our hearts and minds and will help us to live in a way that just gives you a larger and larger part of us and our experience over the next few days. Bless us all, we pray. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be realities to all of us as long as we live, because we ask it for your namesake. Amen.